Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with the seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today, I am sitting down and chatting with someone you might recognize from the Instagram handle, Tercy Teach. It is Rachel Houdon. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I cannot wait to absolutely pick your brain of all of your tips and tricks. You know, you've been helping people through Instagram and social media. Um, But for those of my listeners who maybe aren't familiar with who you are, can you give yourself a little introduction? Sure. I am a dolphin trainer and I've been in the field. I just celebrated the 10th anniversary of my first internship. So that's exciting. Also makes me feel very old. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. And then I've uh, been a full-time trainer officially with dolphins for a little over six years now. Uh, A couple years ago, I think we all kind of found different projects to work on during COVID when all of that started. And uh, I started kind of really looking at what I was doing and what more could I be doing. Uh, I love to teach and educate and inspire as many of us do in the field. And I kind of wanted to take that and run with it in a way that's going to encourage people within the animal care field. Mm. that the general opinion and view from the public tends to be a more negative one over Mm -hmm. the last probably decade or so due to some of those films who must not be named and things like that. (laughs) Uh, So I think it's important to exactly what your podcast is doing is inspire people to believe that that is still something that they can achieve uh, and that it is an attainable dream. People see dolphin training, as you know, as something unattainable and just something that we think about when we're six years old and are dreaming our wildest dreams about being an astronaut or being a dolphin trainer, but it's a completely achievable. It's absolutely something that we can do. And it's not as difficult as it may appear when you first look into it. Uh, But there are not a lot of easy to find resources Mm -hmm. for information on exactly how to do that. Uh, You know, you can spend hours doing research on different aquarium websites or on the IMATA website or the AZA website. And then of course, if you have the opportunity to talk with a trainer face-to-face at an aquarium, then they may be able to give you some actionable steps, but not everybody has that opportunity before they're able to get into the field. Mm -hmm. So all of that combined kind of inspired me to start curating my social media page toward educating people on, okay, well, what, what actually is dolphin training? You know, it's a lot more than meets the eye on the surface. So what is it and how do you actually get into doing it and come along with me, look at my journey, look at how I did it, but also understand that that's not the only way to get there. For sure. Did you worry at all opening up your social media? Oh my gosh. The imposter syndrome is so real. It is so real because, you know, I work with people 
people that have been in the field for decades who have way more experience than I do. So of course they have more to share, more stories to tell, or, you know, why would anybody listen to me? What kind of, you know, information do I have that, that they can't find elsewhere? What kind of personality do I have that they would want to engage in and watch? And they tell you that, you know, when you first start doing something, and I'm sure you can attest to this as well with your podcast, those first couple, you look back now and you're like, oh, cringe, <laughs> those are terrible, but you've got to start somewhere. So I, with me, I look back on when I first started learning how to even do reels and I'm like, oh gosh, well, at least I tried, <laughs> but, um, and they tell you that it's important to start to like niche down. So that's what I started to do is I, I followed a bunch of like Instagram gurus, right. That teach mm. you how to do Instagram and, and find your, find your niche and niche down and find your thing. And, um, obviously my niche, that was easy. It was dolphin training or even animal care and training, but kind of figuring out exactly what people were interested in. And then knowing up front that, you know, I had family and friends and people from high school that followed me on socials that absolutely would not be interested in that kind of, mm -hmm. of content and understanding that when I first started putting it out, that I would probably lose a whole bunch of people that were just not interested in preparing myself mentally for that. <laughs> but you've had, you know, so much success on your pages so far. Um, what made you kind of decide to keep going because I know imposter syndrome is it is a big thing I think we all struggle with it I definitely struggled with it writing my book you know like who who the hell am I like why am I doing this but I think what's really important is everyone has their own individual voice everyone has their own way of teaching of saying things and you know if you're doing it certain people might gravitate towards you someone else is doing it they might gravitate towards them because everyone has their own different way of being so everyone has value to add for sure yeah I think that was something that I had to overcome mentally was that I know that you have some resources for new trainers and I know uh, Amanda that Amanda girl has some resources for new trainers panoramic panoramic ocean has some but we're all kind of we're obviously there's a market for it right because all of us are finding success in that and I think what what really kept me going was one I wish I had that kind of resource, right? We're all about oh, absolutely. the same age. And none of us had that kind of resource when we were coming up in the field early on. And so that's what, what kind of kept me going at first. And then two, once I started putting out content and getting a few more followers and the questions just started pouring mm -hmm. in. And in a lot of ways, they were a lot more simplistic than I was originally anticipating because I was thinking again with that imposter syndrome, oh, I'm going to get these complicated questions that I don't, won't fully understand or won't fully be able to answer. But I had to kind of put myself back in their shoes 10 years ago when I was starting out and thinking about, oh my gosh, I didn't know any of these, what seemed to be basic things now, then. So let me put myself back 10 years ago and think about, okay, well, what is, what even is an internship? What does that even look like? You know, who, what kind of qualifications do I even need to go to school for it? Is there a dolphin training bachelor's degree? I wish, but yeah. <laughs> there's not. Uh, so I think once people started engaging and, and asking questions and that kind of helped my confidence a little bit and also inspired me to, to keep going and, and and offer 
so much of a wider variety of information than I was originally anticipating. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, we are of a similar age and I definitely felt very lost and lost and confused when I was starting out, like, where the hell am I going to get this information? You know, we grew up in the age where it was really only Facebook, you know, Instagram was still pretty new and there wasn't any trainer that I'm aware of who was telling anyone online about how to become a trainer. You know, I got my information from the parks. Um, have you, because I know your your content focuses very much on teaching, which is fantastic. Have you experienced any negativity online towards the kind of, oh my God, you're a dolphin trainer. Why do you do this? Sure. That it comes with the territory, right? If you're mm -hmm. going to put yourself out there as a dolphin trainer or a whale trainer like you, you're going to find activists that find your account and find your page and you end up with internet trolls that just want to argue but then every so often I would get a comment that was that seemed it kind of under the guise of an activist but they were actually curious and asking questions and trying to understand a little bit more and I loved that right so on one hand anytime an activist or something comments or engages with your content it's just throwing it out to more people right it tells the instagram gods and the algorithm that people are engaging with your content and shows it to more people so on one hand it's a benefit right it's a positive but on the other hand it can tear away at you right the mm -hmm. more comments you get like that it's so hard sometimes to rise above that and remain positive but i think the biggest thing is is knowing the kind of welfare and care that we give to those animals and being completely confident in that um, is, is what keeps me kind of rising above it. I think it's important that when people are commenting, you know, aggressive kind of things or condescending kind of things about the field, that it's important to remember that a lot of times, not every time, but most of the time it comes from a place of them caring for the animals as well. So I find it's really important and also impactful to kind of find somewhere in there some common ground with them and, and understanding that both of us just want what's best for the animal. And they have this idea of what that might be, but working with them every day gives us a much better picture of what that might look like. And it gives us a platform to be able to educate. Absolutely. You know, and it's so worthwhile. It, it really is. You know, if you can just reach that one person or change that mi the mind of one person, you know, it's been worth it. But going back to focusing on the education services that you provide, um, what was your own internship experience like? Yeah, uh, I did an unpaid internship and then I was blessed enough to find a paid internship after that. Okay. Um, yeah, those, those are rare, but I did end up finding one. Uh, it's all on the job learning and training, right? So again, there's no bachelor's degree in dolphin training. So each of the internships that I was a part of did come with a lecture series and that was taught by different trainers at the facility. So you learn some of the, the basics as simple as like B.F. Skinner and Ivan Pavlov, some of those principles of psychology and, and even human behavior, right? And then it can get a little more complicated into motivation and differential reinforcement, some of those more complicated, more abstract ideas in animal training. And with an internship, what goes along with that is the hands-on component to it. Now, you may not physically be working with the animals as much as an intern, but like learning it in that kind of 
quote unquote classroom setting and then immediately turning around to a habitat and seeing it displayed or used with an animal, I think that's what helps people learn it so much better. So there is that hands-on component that um, I find is really impactful, uh, but it's difficult, right? Because most of them are unpaid. So traveling across the country, away from your home and your family and affording to live off of that without getting paid is difficult. So how can I offer an education through social media that's accessible to people? And that's kind of what drives my my Instagram as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me personally, it's it's a big I think it's a big issue in the field is requiring aspiring trainers to do so much unpaid experience to then land a job that is not well paid. <laughs> You know, I think for a lot of industries and careers, if you're expected to do unpaid internships, you're kind of guaranteed that you're going to come out of that with a decent paying job. Uh, unfortunately, that's not something that that we have experienced. Do you think that there's ways that facilities could even subsidize interns? Do you think that's what we should be looking to in the future? Yeah, I think that already the field has started to move in that direction. But as we know, change is never something industry-wide that happens overnight. It's mm -hmm. not something that happens quickly. And I think right now we're starting to see it a little bit more in the terrestrial, the zoo side. And I think that the marine side of things is just a little bit behind. It's We were established a little bit later than the zoological mm -hmm. side, right? So we're just kind of a little bit farther behind in the logistics of all of it. So I think the zoo side is starting to move that direction. And I've seen some of the marine side head that way as well. Um, but it's a tough transition if you look at it from a business standpoint, because if you can get hundreds of applicants for free labor while offering, of course, an educational component, then it's really tough to convince the people in charge of budgeting to start spending thousands on the exact same work that they're already receiving. Um, I have my my MBA, my master's in business. And so that was really impactful as, as well in my journey to look at, well, yes, obviously we are led by our hearts and, and how much we care for those animals and giving them the best. But at the same time, each of these aquariums and zoos are still a business and have to be run as such. And they have to keep the lights on and, and keep a profit coming in so that we're able to spend money for those animals and, and bettering the care that we can give them. So that's something that I try to constantly keep in the back of my mind, but I am in agreement that we should be moving in that direction. And, and it is moving that way. It's just very slow goings. <laughs> well, we've seen, you know, in more recent years, there's certain facilities who have been offering kind of a hybrid internship slash seasonal. So it's kind of the first three months as an intern, the following three months as a seasonal position. So it's kind of that transition between okay you you do your three months and you will then have you know you it will go into a paid position it might not be permanent but it will allow you to have seasonal paid experience on your resume which I think is invaluable and I think you know those options kind of give that good blend of you know the business side being happy but also not necessarily exploiting the fact that there's so many people who want you know this position and I think 
as trainers, it's something we should always be mindful of is yes, while there might be a lot of people wanting an internship and fighting tooth and nail, you know, they're still there for an education, you know, they, they're still very deserving of being humanized and, you know, put first and in everything. How do you think trainers can be mindful of that? Absolutely. I completely agree with you on that point. And it's, it's one of my big passion projects as well is, is reminding trainers that first of all, you were there at one point and you remember how you were treated by the trainers that you worked under. And in some cases, that means that you remember qualities that you also want to embody, but at the same time means that sometimes during that internship, you said, well, I don't ever want to be like that to my interns. And I think that you get so many years into the field that you kind of forget what that was like. And so it is a huge passion of mine to remind people that even if it's your 5,000th time doing something, which it probably is, mm -hmm. it's their fifth time. And something that I think is so refreshing as the interns and the newer staff come in is how they're just so happy to be there. And it's so easy to forget that when you've become a little bit more jaded by the field and kind of get bogged down and just how exhausting it is physically and mentally and emotionally. And so it's refreshing and sometimes it's, it's brushed off as like, okay, well, they're just being young and silly. And it's like, no, we should, we should harness that and, and let that be the guide, right? We're doing the coolest job in the world. That should be the mentality that we have. And so, yes, they're there for an education and it's our job to give them that, right? It's our responsibility to mold the minds of the future of the industry and we want the industry to progress and get better and better every single time we bring new staff in so if we're able to create in them this this kind-hearted and compassionate individual who will end up in a leadership role down the road which they inevitably will as the turnover is so high then that's what we should be emphasizing and prioritizing as we educate them i love that you're so <laughs> So right. And one thing I drill into all of my mentees is you are not there to do the facility a favor. You are there, yes, to work very hard, but they are there to teach you. Mm. I think a lot of aspiring trainers go in thinking I have to give my soul to this yes job to everything and yeah we work hard we put our blood sweat and tears into the animals but I never want to see it crossing that line of anyone being taken for granted or taken advantage of so I think it's so important like you said to have that balance to teach but also those interns can also teach us as trainers so for you as a trainer what do you think are some of the best qualities that you can find in an intern Sure. I think the biggest ones, and I kind of already touched on it, is that that positivity and that attitude of, oh my gosh, I'm just happy to be here. And that's that should be what us trainers are are pulling and pulling from and drawing on and, and hopefully having that same kind of attitude. I think another really big one for interns across the board is uh, initiative and determination and being self kind of a self-starter. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it tends to be a personality trait of those of us in the field and it's almost essential right so we all work as part of a team because you can't just care for all these dolphins and whales all on your own but you're also working a lot 
solo, right? Like we each have a job to do and it all, we're all just different little cogs in this greater wheel that creates that, that um, lifestyle and that care, that welfare for the animals. So being able to, to look at a situation and say, well, they're doing this and they're doing this. Where's, where's the hole? Where, where can I fill in and um, proactively move toward doing some of those tasks? And obviously as an intern, they're not going to be, well, let me go jump and feed, feed these animals or go jump in and do a show. But, you know, as trainers, we are so busy all day long. That is a constant thing. We are always on our feet. There's never time to sit down and fill out records, but uh, it sometimes means that there isn't as much time to, you know, deep clean a particular item in our, in our facility or in our habitat while it's so necessary because the cleanliness of those habitats is essential for the health of our animals. We get so busy in the actual feeding of the animals or the presentations or the encounters or the research, whatever it is, that sometimes those crucially important tasks um, kind of get left by the wayside. And I think that's an important message for the interns to understand is that while you may be elbow deep in fish or soap suds on a regular basis, those are some of the most crucially important jobs that we have at the aquarium, um, helping them to understand the bigger picture and why those cleaning tasks and why that fish prep or diet prep is important because it is the basic foundations of how we're able to care for those animals. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, something that when you're just starting out, you do have to remember is that you you do have to do the time doing the cleaning and doing the organizing and the grunt work and I think also when you get a little bit older and you've been in the field for a while is to remember that you're never above that work either and what my supervisor Duncan at Marineland was so incredible at modeling that for all of us you know head trainer of killer whales been in the industry for decades he was always washing buckets with us. He was there check out in the kitchen every night, not to supervise, but he was there scale checking with everyone else. And, you know, it goes back to that team mentality that you spoke about the fact that you're not just one person, you're a cog in the wheel. So a lot of people worry about standing out in an internship, but more so on applications because there's so many applications being sent out it's very difficult to kind of have an idea of how am I going to stand out from the crowd what do you look for in applications or what have you heard about yeah I think for me personally what I'm looking for in applications is someone who may at least have a basic understanding of what kind of the animal care field looks like. And that can be any kind of animal experience. So working at a vet clinic or working at an animal shelter, any kind of working with animals is mostly cleaning up after them. We all know that. And it's hard manual labor all the time. And I think for people that are aspiring animal trainers and they've they've only held maybe desk jobs or they've held um, you know, cashier type jobs, they don't fully understand just how much physicality goes mm -hmm. into the field. And so I typically look for any kind of animal experience at all, because I think that shows that they understand how much hard work it is, and they're willing to make the next step to continue doing that with their lives. Um, additionally, and this one, I post about this 
probably once a week is a one page resume. And I cannot emphasize that enough. If you think about how competitive the field is and how many applicants your hiring managers are getting on a regular basis, if you submit a six page resume, they're not going to read it. They're just not. And even the one page resumes, they're skimming, looking for certain things or components. And if something, you know, piques their interest, maybe they'll read a little bit more into it. But we're so busy, we just don't have time. And a six page resume is too much information, right? The point of the resume is to land you the interview. And the interview is where you can start to discuss uh, more of that and go into more depth on your different qualifications and examples of times that you've used uh, qualities that they're looking for. But the resume itself is just to pique their interest enough to be uh, to, to offer you that interview process. Absolutely. And I think a lot of when you're just getting your foot in the door of the field, you want to show like every everything that you have. But I always say yes. to people, think about people that have been in this industry for 10 years. Like my resume, most of it's just one line. Yeah. You know, it's just my job title. And it just goes, it's like killer rail trainer here, killer rail trainer here, dolphin trainer here. Like that's all they need to know. And what's so funny is that the field is so small, right? That we all know everybody. So if you put your title and the facility you were at, we pretty much know what you did, <laughs> whether it was an yeah. encounter facility or a show facility, we generally have a good idea of what kind of tasks you did. Not now, just that, we can just message our friend and be like, hey, did you work with this person? What were they like? You know, exactly. we're going to get a very good idea of who you are very quickly. Exactly. I completely agree. So that's that's my biggest things is the one page resume. I think some some bonus things would be, and some internships require it, some do not, but proactively getting your scuba certification, that's one of those that as much as there are different paths, that one is almost always non-negotiable as a as a qualification for the job. So if you've already gone ahead and started that or have already gotten that, I think that stands out. Obviously, that's another expense, of course. So sometimes it's not always possible, but that's just one of those things that you can't get around. My advice is to do it during <clears throat> college or university, because a lot of times you can take it as a university class and boost your GPA a little bit, also get your scuba certification a little bit. Uh, and then for me, I really like to see people that have been in education positions at zoos or aquariums or with different animals and wildlife. Um, not everybody is is turned on to that component, but the public speaking portion of our job is so pre prevalent that the education positions means that they've already got experience speaking with the public, phrasing things just the right way, or talking in front of large groups and a formal or informal type of presentation. So I find a lot of value in those that have education positions. Especially nowadays, you know, so much of our job nowadays is educating the public. So it's going to be invaluable. Another thing that you're very vocal about on your social channels is helping people to pass the swim test. Yeah. Yes, uh, that is, that's a big one and people can get hung up on that. And I did myself personally, I, there were certain facilities that when I was starting out in the field, I just assumed, well, I'm never going to work there because I won't ever pass that swim test. I'll work at these smaller facilities that have easier swim tests or don't have swim tests at all. And, you know, as I got further into the field and was in the water a lot more often, I was like, okay, well, maybe I could. And then I looked at some of the facilities that have the more rigorous swim tests. And there's a reason that they do. There's a lot more that they're able to do with their animals. But with that comes 
the need to be safe, right? Both for the animal and the trainer. So I, I've done a few swim tests in my career. Um, the first one I did, I was in tears the whole night before I flew out oh, there no. because I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Um, <clears throat> got on the plane, flew out there. This is at SeaWorld San Diego was my first one. And I got there. It was still dark outside when I got there in the morning and I should, they said dress comfy. So I was in like ratty sweatpants from my high school, like did not look cute, but I was, I was there and that was as much as I could do. Um, I was pretty convinced that I, I wasn't going to pass because I was all in my head about it. So I memorized the narration portion on the plane on the way there, which in hindsight probably should have prepped that a little earlier, but, um, <laughs> and then that morning, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm going to be exercising for the next little bit. And then the interview portion comes after that, if I make it. So, um, I should take some food, but I'll probably make it out before lunch. So I had like two Cheez-Its because anything beyond that, I was so nervous and so anxious that I was like, I'm going to be sick. I can't eat. <laughs> um, and then I did end up passing that swim test, but I think it's important to point out that I did not make it all the way on the breath hold, the underwater portion of the swim test but it's on a point system and some are, some aren't, but I passed everything else fine. And even after not getting all the way across on the underwater swim, I remember walking over and like drying off my face and I was like crying into my towel for like three seconds. And then I was like, oh, pull no. it together. <laughs> I, I'm a crier. That's my reflex, right? So if I get frustrated or anxious or overwhelmed, that's my reaction. And it's not even, I'm not even sad. <laughs> I want to talk about that quickly. I am a crier too. And this is something I'm now so passionate about teaching people about because it can be a biological reflex. And I used to cry at work if I was given harsh criticism. And it's not because I didn't agree with the criticism. It's because I was so hard on myself. I was so disappointed in myself. And I did get huge backlash at one facility for it and I used to just say to them like please just ignore the fact that there's water coming out of my eyes because I cannot <laughs> control it I can't so it. for anyone else out there who suffers with the same problem it's okay to be sensitive yes and I think I had one supervisor or manager that every time you know we would I would get criticisms. And like you said, I'm not even upset. I'm like, yes, I agree with the criticisms. You're right. I should have done those things better. Just ignore the tears. And he was so gracious about the whole thing. He would, he knew anytime before he gave me feedback, we would like walk away from the group or walk away from the team into a different area. And he'd be like, you're fine. You do you, you do what you need to do. Here's the feedback. You tell me what you think. And then you take a minute, compose yourself and then come back and join the team and let's, let's keep going. And I'm so jealous. I'm so <laughs> jealous that you got that. I got the stop being a baby feedback. I got that too. <laughs> I got that too. But this, this particular supervisor absolutely changed the game because oh, he was no. understanding like, okay, that can be a reflex and a reaction, but as long as you're receiving the feedback and then mm -hmm. applying it and we're getting better then great, let's move forward. So what kind of advice would you give to people who are looking to prepare for their first swim test slash interview? Yeah, I have so much advice. Uh, let's see if I can keep it succinct. <laughs> uh, I hated hearing that it was all mental when I was prepping and preparing for swim tests. 
but coming out the other side and having passed several swim tests, I will also say that it is all <laughs> mental um, and overcoming that. I think the best ways that you can start to prepare are to build your endurance and your lung capacity. And you can do that in a variety of different ways. If you have access to a swimming pool, start swimming laps. It sucks. <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> if you don't have access to a pool, start running. That also sucks, but do it anyway. Um, and start with what you can do, right? I think that's the biggest thing is people go, oh my gosh, I have to be able to run six miles tomorrow. Like, no, start walking or start jogging and start with half a mile or start with one mile. And then just like with animals, do your successive approximations, your little baby steps and build, build up to it, right? Um, if you know that you're going to be applying for facilities with swim tests, start then start when you apply, because a lot of times you'll get an invitation and it's a week out or two weeks out. And that's not necessarily going to be enough time or start prep. before start. Yeah. Like if you're in college and you know, you want to do this as a job, start swimming twice a week. Yeah, absolutely. Just something to get you that comfortability in the water. Cause I think that's part of it. Just feeling comfortable with putting your face underwater and opening your eyes underwater, I think is another one. Uh, obviously opening your eyes in chlorinated pools doesn't feel great. And most of the time at the facilities, they're not going to be pools like that. So your eyes won't hurt quite as much, but uh, getting comfortable with that for the swim test. So you can look around for that dive weight or that flag on the bottom of the pool or knowing where you're at in the pool as you do your breath hold and your underwater swim. Um, I think another thing that you can start doing, and this sounds so silly, is start holding your breath, <laughs> start practicing your breath holds on dry land. Uh, I had a lot of issues clearing my ears when I first started scuba diving. So start clearing your ears on a regular basis, just kind of your ears used to that and, and comfortability with that. Uh, there's a few different ways that you can clear your ears. But for me, the only thing that works is holding my nose and blowing really hard. So I would do that if I knew I was going to be swimming or diving at all. I started doing that from the moment I woke up until I started swimming. Uh, what else? The water tread um, or staying afloat. You can use your lungs to help you out with that. You know, you don't have to be treading water and swimming your butt off the entire time. You can fill your lungs and that helps act as a natural flotation device. Mm. I mean, I think, I think for me as well, like it's so individual, like everyone has their own strengths. You know, some people are going to struggle with the surface dive. Some people are going to struggle with the breath hold. You know, it's all about playing to your strengths and also working on your weaknesses you know I am very lucky and privileged that I grew up as a competitive swimmer so I never really had any issues with the swim test I hated not having goggles yes it yes. was horrific and thankfully you know yeah we're swimming in salt water so salt water is what you cry so it doesn't really sting your eyes at all but I just really didn't like how claustrophobic it made me feel under the water. Like everything's fuzzy. I don't know where I am. I don't like this. So yeah, that's, that's a big one to work on for sure. And I think that's something to touch on as well. And I get this question fairly often and I noticed that you're wearing glasses and I'm currently wearing contacts. And I think that's something to touch on that people think, oh, well, they swim and they open their eyes underwater. I can't do it if I wear glasses or contacts. Not necessarily the case. I open my eyes underwater every single day. Um, 
depending on what I'm doing, I'll either keep my contacts in or not. So if I know I'm not going to be moving really, really quickly through the water, then I can just squint my eyes and it holds my contacts in place and I'm still able to keep them in and see a little bit better. Uh, but if I'm doing more of the high energy water work or I know I'm going to be under for longer periods of time, I'll just take them out. And I think something to remind people of that wear contacts and glasses that it's blurry for everybody yeah. underwater. Yeah. It's not just blurry for you because you don't have your contacts in. I promise it's blurry for everybody. Mm -hmm. I think it's also worth pointing out just like a health PSA. No optician or doctor will sit will tell you to wear your contacts in the water because it can increase infection. So do it at your own risk. But yeah. I completely agree with you. Like anytime that I've had my lenses in and done a foot push or a rocket, it's just been like they've just whoop, straight out Gone. of the ice. Yeah. <laughs> Gone just, immediately. Yep. <laughs> and I'm let's like, talk well, about Yeah, let's talk about time. water work quickly. Sure. It's so hard. Yes. Like, even if you're a really good swimmer, and I would put myself in that category, not mm -hmm. not to brag, I just trained for like 15, oh, yeah. 15 years. Terrible, terrible water work, <laughs> because I never, I never did much of it. So I've just had like a little taster of like some foot pushes, some rockets, some little things. Oh my God, you have to work so hard to be good at it. Yes. And it, it also even more on like on top of already being physically fit and being able to swim through the water doing water work uses every muscle right so if you're doing like you said like a foot push but you're under the surface of the water you're not only steering your you know five and a half feet you're steering the other eight or nine feet of the dolphin behind you and so your entire body is so tense and rigid and you're very subtle subtle very tiny subtle movements are moving you know 10 plus feet of animal through the water um i have had my share of injuries due to water work because it can be dangerous right you're moving really quickly in an environment that's not humans weren't meant to live underwater so you're in, in an an environment that you're not as comfortable in so i think that's something else to note is that this job comes with like I've been told before, it's like professional sport level injuries sometimes. Oh, yeah. And also, you do get some hilarious moments and mishaps. You know, I remember hearing the story of one of the dolphin trainers doing a foot push and they would foot push under the bridge, which is where the gate was. There's a, there's a bridge going over the gate. And it was with two particular dolphins that push really hard. And if you're doing a foot push at the surface, you've got to really control like the arch of your back. And she was used to doing it with other dolphins who weren't quite such aggressive pushers. And she went face first into the bridge. Oh, yes, I, you probably can't see it. And I know that this is an audio recording, but I have a blue stripe across the bridge of my nose that I've had for several years now. People think it's like makeup or they'll tell me that I have something on my face. And I'm like, no, that's just my face because <laughs> I also... <laughs> ran into a wall oh, and the no. wall was blue and I I guess some of the paint ended up staying in my nose after I you know I was sent <sighs> to the doctor and everything else but I was learning we called it a pec spiral so you've got a foot on each of their pectoral flippers and you're doing that underwater push but you're spinning mm. and it is so easy to lose where you are in the pool because mm. everything's blue underneath the water and so you start to look for really subtle like there's the acrylic windows or there's 
there's the drain on this side or you know there's the shadow that means this particular part of the pool but when you're just starting out and you haven't learned all of those different nuances of being underwater um and of course you know it's my own fault because you're steering so I drove myself into a wall yeah <laughs> bless the dolphin's heart he you know he broke off my foot and I got him on a little hand target we came to the surface and I pointed him into somewhere else and you know my supervisor was like why don't you hop out (laughs) (laughs) yeah do you need some help getting out of the pool are you okay (laughs) yeah I mean it's hard enough to control yourself in the water never mind above the water I remember one of my best friends when I was on the killer reel team at Laura Park she was starting out on the dolphin team and they kept talking about I think they called it a crucifix, but it was kind of like a rocket, but it's from static. So you float at the surface and then the dolphins come and get you and you just do like a quick kind of like up and down. Sure. And I think some people also call it a stand on. No, but they, you don't stay on the dolphins. Yeah, we call that, well, lots of people call it different things, but that's either a standing man or a walking on water. But the stand on is what you're talking about. They're just kind of floating ah, there. The yeah, 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 yeah. Right down yeah yeah, yeah. I, re- I recognize that yeah and um I remember thinking I was like come on it can't be that hard like she was because <laughs> there were so many issues like it was she was just falling all over the place and it was hilarious because she would just come back to the kitchen dripping wet and I'd be like so how'd it go <laughs> she was like oh not good I fell I belly flopped again but yeah controlling yourself in the air is even harder Yes, I learning a standing man or the walking on water. So the one where you are like the dolphin is probably just ears out, right? And they're kind of balancing you and you're standing on one foot, but you're not even using your whole foot, right? You're using the width of their rostrum part of your foot to stay balanced. And it took me probably a year and a half to finally master that behavior. It took me forever. And I looked ridiculous learning it because you're on one foot and you don't really know what to do with the other foot so it's just Mm. kicking all over the place and back and forth and then your arms are you know you're basically doing the macarena in the air (laughs) trying to keep your balance and (laughs) it just and I was you know I remember obviously like you said we're so hard on ourselves and I remember being so frustrated and then having to remind myself that like well this isn't even water work this is just like poison balance and I've never had that so (laughs) this makes sense yeah I remember when um I was first starting out and I'd watched the behind the scenes of the Believe DVD for like, I like wore it through. And I remember they were, they were working out in the gym and one of the trainers was balancing on a bozu and had flipped it upside down. Like, you know, that kind of half exercise ball with like the hard plastic and Uh she flipped it upside down and she was doing like one legged squats on it to like simulate a standing man. And I got it into my head that if I could do that, I could do <laughs> water work. So I, you would just find me in like the gym at my college, like doing this random crap in the corner. People must have been like, what the hell is she doing? But I was like, I will be able to do this. And let me tell you, it does not matter if you can stand on a bozu. Standing on a dolphin is very different. Completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to quickly touch on, there's a lot of kind of controversy in the media and in the world right now about doing water work and doing high energy water work with animals. What's your take on it? Uh, I, that's a really good question. And as we kind of already touched on, a lot of that can come from people outside of the industry that don't fully understand it. I work with these dolphins every day and 
I can tell you with confidence that I work with dolphins who find that so reinforcing. They get so excited about doing it. Um, they'll flow from one high energy water work into another high energy water work. And that tends to motivate them even more. Their energy increases, their, their criteria for the behaviors increases. And so, I mean, that's from a personal in the field perspective, that's my argument on the surface level. I think when you get, if you get more political about it, you can say that, and it's true, you know, there are dolphins that have different personalities and they yeah. all enjoy different things. And some of them are more motivated and enjoy some of the lower energy um, encounter type behaviors or just want to lay there and get back rubs and tail rubs all day long. And they're perfectly happy with that. And then there's other dolphins that really do thrive on that high energy. Um, and I also think there's a component to that relationship building. Um, working together with those dolphins and accomplishing a goal together, I think really speaks so well to the relationship that you've been able to build with those animals and, and also to their motivation to spend time with you. There was that study that came out not ooh, a couple of years ago that talked about animals under uh, human care at zoological facilities, they are constantly anticipating sessions, right? Like they spend a lot of time looking for trainers or making little vocalization sounds and splashing and things when the trainers walk by, kind of indicating that they anticipate that. They, they maybe even look forward to it. Obviously, we don't want to get into the anthropomorphic side of things, but isn't it interesting that they seem so interested in their trainers um, on their own free time? Yeah, and I think a lot of people who don't understand our job maybe the way that we do forget that trainers are the first ones to question our own ethics and our own morals. And we're the ones that go into work and think, am I doing enough for these animals? Or if your animal's a little bit slow in session or you know isn't responding the way that they normally do, you're going to be like, oh, what's what's up we'll call a vet we're going to analyze this behavior we're going to stop doing water work for a few days to see if maybe they just want to break like what's going on let's reevaluate you know so we're the ones that are constantly adapting and trying to give our animals the best welfare possible mm -hmm. I think that's something that I guess activists don't really see you know their their main point is always oh well you you make them do this for money and it's like well okay the money argument is the window because we don't make any of that first of all second of all we love these animals more than anything right we know all the sacrifices it takes when you're in this field time with family and weekends and the sore joints and the dry hair and all of that and we love these animals more than anything and if there was ever any kind of animal welfare in question or any abuse that could even be construed as potentially negative we wouldn't be working there we wouldn't be doing this we are animal lovers first and foremost and would never stand for any harm coming to these animals and so I think that's one of my biggest arguments is no you don't understand I I do anything and everything for these animals there's no way I would ever be okay with anything happening to them especially at the hand of of one of their caregivers Absolutely. Well, Rachel, honestly, this has been a fantastic conversation, even for current trainers or former trainers, but especially for anyone who is looking to get into the industry, who's looking to get started. So if anyone wants to find you and all of your resources and information, where can they do that? 
yeah, right now I am on Instagram primarily, uh, full-time job, and then doing this on the side. It's a lot. So I just stick to the one social media for now, but I, uh, my handle is at Tercy Teach. If you know about bottlenose dolphins, their scientific name is Terciops truncatus. So the first part of that scientific name, T-U-R-S-I, and then teach because I teach dolphins, they teach me mostly, and then I teach you how to break into the field as well. So right now on Instagram, I'm working on making my website and eventually launching an online course that will be kind of an all-inclusive guide, a step-by-step -step guide into how to convert your passion for dolphins into a full-time job. So keep an eye out for that on my Instagram. That's where that will all be announced. Amazing. And the link will also be in the description box of this podcast. So you can go ahead and have a look at that. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to rate and subscribe. Sharing on social media is always a bonus and I will catch you guys next week.